Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQVD in San Francisco, I'm Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, elephants can smell danger, and a fly can taste an apple just by landing on it. Bumblebees can't see red, but they can detect the ultraviolet hue at the center of a sunflower that's invisible to humans. These are just some of the extraordinary senses that science journalist Ed Yong celebrates in his book, An Immense World, all about animals' completely different interpretations of our planet that are happening alongside us all the time. We listened back to my June conversation with Yong about what he learned from trying to view animals, not through his eyes, but through theirs. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. The ordinary dog is an extraordinary sensory being. Takes it, take its sense of smell, for instance. I learned from reading Ed Yong's new book that even when a dog is breathing out, it's still sucking air in, and that this exhaling while also sniffing creates, quote, rotating vortices that waft fresh odors into the nose. This description from Yang gave me a much deeper understanding of what we mean when we say dogs' noses are sensitive to smell. And it's just one of the many ways that Yang, in his new book called An Immense World, helps us appreciate not just our fellow creatures, but also the planet we share. Ed Yang, so glad to have you on Forum. Hi, thanks so much for having me. You know, staying with dogs and smell for a second, it's the shape of the dog's nose, right, that also allows for this great smelling ability? Yep, absolutely. Um, if The next time you look at a dog's nose, um, look carefully at the, the shape of the nostrils. Um, there are two holes at the front, but they also taper off to the side. And those side slits are what create those rotating vortices that you wrote about. So um, typically you would expect that if an animal were like exhaled while its nose was on the ground, the air coming out would push away like um, any scented uh, mole molecules that would linger on the ground. But because of those side slits, the, the um, rotating whirls of air actually suck more odor into the dog's nose. So regardless of whether it's inhaling or exhaling, it's getting this like conveyor belt of scent into the nose. And then that scent is just going through this like really weird anatomical hardware that exists in a dog's nose and is very different from ours. That again adds to this continuous flow of odor. Like if I tried to do what my dog Typo does when he sniffs, um, firstly, I would hyperventilate. I, I can't <laughs> sniff that fast. But also I would continuously like lose track of scent because I'm, 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 every time I exhale, I'm pushing all that rich information out of my nose and away from me. A dog doesn't do that. It's continuously taking in that info. Yeah. By the way, Typo is an adorably funny name. Thank for your you. Dog. Very apropos for a writer, I think. He is yeah. a typo, typo when he's being good, and he's typography when he's being naughty. Ah, I see. Wow. Well, you certainly have a way uh, with words and, and of telling us what 
we've accepted as ordinary is really, in fact, extraordinary. Like when you describe taking Typo for a walk and what he and, and most dogs typically do, right? They're, they're constantly smelling everything. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's just beautiful to watch him. Um, you know, he, he sniffs everything. He sniffs um, lampposts. He sniffs, he sniffs plants. Um, you know, when he sniffs a plant, it, it's just uh, incredible to me. We're just watching the delicacy with which he uses his nose. He, you know, he just moves it around each and every leaf. Um, and I, I love watching him do this because I think it's, it's his primary way of interacting with the world. It, it's his main sense that the way he gets information about the world around him. And he shows me that the world around me is full of wonder and of change. You know, when we go on walks, we're going on exactly the same streets we walk on all the time. They look the same to me, one walk to the next. And he is acting as if they are entirely new again, as if every walk is an adventure, <laughs> which to his nose, it very much is. You know, yeah. he's... Um, there's one analogy I, I, I love is, is um, you know, when he's, when he's sniffing like patches of dried pee left behind by other dogs, he knows like which dogs in the neighborhood have been passed, probably like what they're up to. You know, the pee will tell him about the scent will tell him like maybe about the dog's health, um, you know, what, what it's been eating. Like it's actually quite a social activity. And there have been moments where I'm like walking him and looking at like my Instagram feed on my phone and watching him sniff like patches of pee from other dogs and thinking, this is the same activity. You know, these are <laughs> entirely comparable acts we're doing. It's his social media right there. <laughs> it's his social media, absolutely. So the, your dog typo, when you're describing it, is also such a great description of of an entity, a creature being in its own sensory world, which you mm -hmm. called, or at least you quote um, another scientist as coining it the umwelt, if I'm saying that yes. correctly. Can you describe right. what the umwelt is? Yeah, so the word uh, is is German for environment, but the um, scientist who popularized it, um, Jakob van Uxkor, um didn't mean it to uh, to uh, did, wasn't using it using it to mean an animal's physical environment. He meant um, the sensory world in which that creature lives. So each species, whether you're a human or a dog or a tick or an elephant, um, has its own set of um, sights and smells and sounds that it can tap into and that other creatures might not be able to. Um, and that is the umwelt. It's the thin slice of reality that each species can perceive and that is um, unique to it. So humans, for example, um, you know, I've, I've got pretty sharp eyes. Um, I can hear a certain number of, a certain range of frequencies. I can see a certain range of colors. I can't detect um, ultraviolet light that most other sighted animals can see. I can't hear high-pitched ultrasonic frequencies that rats and bats can use. I can't detect the magnetic field of the earth in the way that a songbird or a sea turtle might do. So my umwelt um, doesn't include these things. It is limited. And so is that of all other creatures. We only have this small bespoke sliver of, of this immense world. Yeah, it's amazing. And you mentioned elephants, and I was really struck by how they can rumble at a frequency that other elephants can hear 
across miles, but humans cannot. Um, and so curious what they're communicating. At. I, I know, and right. So um, this was uh, so this was uh, first recognized by um, a, a scientist named Katie Payne. Um, she talks about this wonderful moment where she, um, you know, is recording from these elephants, and she's she's watching them um, in captivity, and she feels this kind of uh, like silent thunder you know this like deep rumbling sensation um that that is more felt than heard and you know, when she she takes the recordings and she um like uh raises the pitch um she recognizes that these elephants that were sort of standing on opposite sides, opposite sides of a wall were having this animated conversation with each other in these infrasonic frequencies that that were largely imperceptible to human observers um, and in the wild, it seems likely that elephants use these frequencies to um, to communicate over very long distances. Um, what are they saying? It's really hard to know. Um, and I think that speaks to uh, uh, one of the most important parts of the Umbel concept, that there is an inherent unknowability to the subjective experiences of other animals you know we, we I've written a whole book about this I, I've read tons of research but there will always be things that I I don't know um, that that I can't know um, and part of the the wonder of this concept I think is that it forces you to do do effortful work to try and take the perspective of another creature in the knowledge that it won't you won't ever fully achieve the task this is about like the glory of a, an mm. unfulfilled task that you nonetheless attempt yes and what have you learned through the process of doing this yourself ed about why it's so valuable i think um it gives me two things like, firstly it, it it teaches me about the lives of other animals and and it, it it cues me into a lot of extraordinary biology. So, you know, we talked about the the noses of dogs, the the um, the uh, hearing of elephants. Uh, I could give dozens of other examples, but um, I, I'll give you one that's instructive. Right. So, seals have long whiskers on their faces. Those whiskers allow seals to detect the um, currents left behind by swimming fish. So seals can track fish in the water from those currents. Um, I've watched a scientist move a tennis ball through the water uh, in front of a blindfolded seal, and the seal will track the ball. And I don't mean it will just be like the ball's over there. It will follow the path of the ball like exactly as if it was moving along an invisible rope. Now, I learned that, and I think I have a newfound appreciation for this extraordinary thing that seals can do. But it also changes my understanding of water, because I'm looking at the seal, I'm looking at the water in front of it, and that water just looks like water, right? It's, in, it's astonishing to the idea that water can hold a track, but it can. You know, water can hold the equivalent of like a footprint. It can hold um, a trail hinting at the, the, the movements of fish that were, um, move, uh, that were moving through it like minutes ago. And I think this, this is the other thing that studying Umbalts, um gives us. It tells us that parts of the world that we thought we understood are actually full of um, wonder and magic to them. It, it, this is about finding flickers of the unfamiliar in the familiar and the extraordinary in the ordinary. Through, through looking typo, through a typo's sniffs, um, I see the streets around me in a new way. I see water in a new way. I see plants 
um, you know, the, the ocean, the air around us in a new way. Um, and, and I think that's one of the most wondrous aspects of, of this topic. It, it really defamiliarizes you with things that you thought you understood. We're talking with Ed Young about animal sensory perception and the extraordinary ways that animals perceive and interpret our world. Ed Young is a staff writer at The Atlantic. His new book is his second. It's called An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. What have you always wondered about how the animals around you, the creatures around you, perceive the world? What animal sense have you always marveled at? Or maybe you're having some thoughts, reactions, or takeaways to hearing Ed Young talk about learning about these hidden sensory worlds of animals. Uh, if you just have a question for Ed, feel free to email them to forum at kqed.org. You can post them on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram. or at KQED Forum. You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. We'll have more with Ed Young after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. This hour, we're talking with Ed Young about how animals perceive the world. His new book is An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. And you, our listeners, are invited to join the conversation, um, telling us your reaction to what you're hearing about the hidden sensory world of animals, or if there are animals that you've always marveled at or wondered about in terms of how they perceive the world. You can tell us by emailing Forum forum at kqed.org. You can post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum. And you can always call us 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. I'd like to explore another realm here. Um, this is the realm of the super tasters, I think, as you describe it, like mm-hmm. insects and flies and mosquitoes that can taste with their feet, which was such a fun way to think about it. But also one of the things I loved 
was your description of catfish as mm-hmm. swimming tongues. <laughs> they <laughs> had like taste receptors over their entire bodies. Tell us about their senses of taste, these creatures. Yeah, so um, t- taste, I think we think of as a thing that we do with our tongues, uh, we, which we do with our mouths. Um, and uh, that is, uh, that that's true because we're kind of medium-sized animals. We put our food in our mouths. If you're a very small animal and food is something that you could conceivably land on, then your taste receptors don't have to be in your mouths. They could be on your feet. And, and they are. Flies and butterflies and many other insects um, have taste receptors in their feet. So when a fly lands on the apple that you're trying to eat, it is tasting that apple before you are. Um, when a mosquito lands on an arm that's covered with DEET, um, it tastes the bitter taste of DEET and flies away. That's one of the reasons why DEET works. Um, and then you have things like catfish, which have really taken this idea of uh, of taste being uh, not uh, taste and not being localized to your mouth to an extreme degree. They have taste buds all around their bodies. Um, you know, you could drop um, uh, you know some meat, some meat flavored juices uh, on the side of a catfish, and it will turn um, to try and eat the thing that it just tasted. Um, I, I think that's that's absolutely extraordinary. It, what it tells you um, is that. Um, you know, we, we think of the senses as, as being like uh, uh, located to very specific organs, right? So uh, vision is the prominence of two eyes, of which there are two on your on your face. Um, sound, uh, hearing is done by ears, of which, again, there are two on your head. If you look at other animals, none of that is universal. Um, sense organs can turn up on all kinds of weird body parts in all kinds of weird numbers. Mm. Yeah, and and there are senses that are just outside of our own understanding of the five. For example, when you talk about the platypus and their ability <laughs> to, I don't even know if I can describe it, but like electro-touch or electro-locate. Right. Um, so a, a lot of animals, uh, platypuses, uh, sharks, a lot of electric fish, can sense um, the electric fields that all living things um, that produce. Um, so, you know, if I go in the water, I will generate a, a very weak electric field around me. Um, and there are animals that can absolutely detect that. Um, it, it makes it very, it makes them very difficult to hide from. You know, a shark or a platypus foraging in murky water can detect buried or hidden prey by um, by uh, sensing the electric fields that those uh, prey inevitably give off. Uh, the platypus's bill is, is interesting too because it has receptors that respond to touch, so it's sensitive to pressure, uh, much like our fingertips are, but it also has those electrosensitive receptors. And it, some people argue that those two things likely fuse into a single sensory perception for the platypus. So then it doesn't have an electric sense and touch. It just has a sense of electro touch. Um, and I, I think that's kind of wonderful too. That um, you know, we, we've sort of all sort of been raised to believe that there are five senses: uh, sight, smell, sound, um, touch. Uh, and uh, taste. Um, and uh, that's not really true when you look at other animals. Uh, and the most common way we think about that is in terms of a sixth sense, but the senses are very difficult to categorize. They're hard to put into different buckets. They're hard to count. Um, other animals might have some, some we don't have and others that, that they might combine senses in weird ways. Well, let's go to some calls. Judy in San Jose. Hi, Judy. 
Hello. I am so excited to talk to Ed. Uh, he is like my hero. I've, <laughs> you know, I've single, re- Thanks, single reason for subscribing to the Atlantic alone. I appreciate um, it. I, uh, uh, I appreciate your writing. It's well worth it. The, uh, I'm kind of an epistemology geek, and so I'm kind of interested in, in terms of the how this relates to us as, as humans and the expansion of our senses in humans. And I know, like in particular, one of the people that fascinates me is uh, this uh, researcher, Laura Baraditsky. I don't know if you're familiar with her. Mm-hmm. Anyway, she has studied with uh, Australia Aborigines, and this particular group actually does not use left and right. They always tell you directions in terms of the cardinal um, directions, you know, east, west, north, south. And the way they do it, apparently, is they have a sense of magnetic north, always, and also that Laura had actually spent some time and actually had developed this sense. And I was wondering if you were familiar with that or had any thoughts on that or, uh, you know, other senses I know, like we have some people who have extra rods and cones in their eyes and so they can... Uh, sense more uh, ranges of color. Yeah, um, the, th- thank you for that question. Um, so I'm, I'm not familiar with the specific example that you just quoted, but the book is full of examples of um, people uh, with sensory skills that um, you know that seem extraordinary, but that I think just speak to the sheer variety of Umbelton even within our own species. Um, So you're right that there are some people who can see this sort of extra dimension of colors um, that uh, other creatures like birds can perceive and that most humans cannot. Um, Most of us have three kinds of color sensing cells in our eyes. Um, Some colorblind people only have two or fewer, but some people have four, much like a bird. And and they do have access to this expanded um, kaleidoscope of colors. for most of them, you know, it's not like they're walking around, like feeling like they have superpowers, right? But part of the the Umwelt concept is that we feel as if our sensory experience is total and complete and what there is to sense. So if you if you suddenly sense more than um, what most people can, uh, you know, it doesn't feel super to you. It just feels normal, um, it, you know, and uh, but there are lots of examples like this um, of of uh, people doing uh, extraordinary things. Um, so uh, in the chapter on echolocation, um, after talking about um, bats and dolphins and all the creatures that more familiarly have um, a kind of biological sonar, I talk about people who have this ability too. Um, there are lots of blind people who can echolocate, who can um, make clicks with their tongues and um, navigate around their surroundings by listening out for the rebounding echoes. Um, so yeah, I think you know the, I, a lot of the book is about differences between species, but even within one species, even within us, um, there's a huge amount of variety. And as I say at the start of the book, An Immense World is a book about diversity, not superiority. Yeah. And one of the things you also point out is that we humans really do possess the capacity to appreciate the Umwelten of other species, though yes. we're not always so good at at using that. You even make the point that you want this book to be about animals as animals and not as the way humans see animals. Can you just talk about why it's problematic that we don't always use this incredible capacity to get outside nice. our Umwelt? What are some of the impacts? Well, some some of them are fairly innocuous. You know, we just 
uh, don't appreciate what animals are actually doing because we are mapping our umwelt onto them. Um, you know, I remember watching this TikTok video of uh, a female Argus pheasant watching this male doing this incredible, like, showy display, and she's like facing off to the side. And people, are, like, you know, the, uh, the like the joke was that he's doing everything he can to get his attention, and she just doesn't care. But you know, birds have fields of view that extend to the side, right? They they have lateral fields of vision. So she is a, the a bird that uh, the the female bird that is pointing in the, like away is actually looking at the male. Um, that's a you know a completely harmless um, mis uh, uh, misunderstanding. But there are more profound ways in which this this same act of anthropomorphism. Uh, has harmful consequences. So there are a lot of dog owners that pull their dogs away from sniff experiences, you know, that, that deem it uh, uncouth when a dog sniffs another dog's genitals, which is actually a totally normal social thing for a dog to do. And I think by doing that, we, we force dogs to live in our umwelt and we deprive them of their main sensory experience to, to their detriment. I think the dogs that don't do this become sadder and more anxious, and um, uh, and you know it, it, it compromises the mental health of creatures that we that we um, care about. We're meant to care about. Um, I've also written in the last chapter of the book and in the excerpt that the Atlantic published about the problem of sensory pollution that we're flooding the world with light and sound in places and times where it doesn't belong. And that too is harming animals. It's forcing them to live in our own belt. Um, it can distract or waylay them, sometimes with fatal results. It harms songbirds and sea turtles and, and, and a lot of other creatures. Um, so I think it, it really is important to understand what other animals are experiencing, um, partly for our own sake, because it's such a rich thing to do. Uh, it's such a rich and human thing to do. But um, because I think if we don't, we sometimes make decisions that really harm them. We're talking with Ed Young about animal sensory perception and also the importance of understanding their sensory worlds in relation to ours. And you, our listeners, are joining the conversation with your thoughts, questions for Ed Young, your appreciation for his writing. Pete tweets, what about dogs that can sniff out disease? Ed evokes Richard Feynman talking, Feynman talking about all the waves that are perpetually jiggling all around us. And uh, Another person wants to know if you're familiar with a 19th century poem about the blind men and the elephant, because the argument <laughs> you're making sounds to me like it. <laughs> yeah, um, right. Uh, I guess, you know, in, in this, in this, uh, uh, in this um, case, the elephant is all of reality, um, right? Like we each are only perceiving a small part of it. And, you know, I think if we really want to understand the world, we need to consider it through the senses of other animals. Otherwise, we're just re we're really getting a thin sliver of an immense world. I just did the thing where I said the name of the book out loud <laughs> in, in the sentence. <laughs> Let me go um, to Yeah, go ahead. Did you want to finish? Uh, no, I couldn't remember the first question. Um, <laughs> they, they were just asking about, uh, they were just being reminded of jiggling of, of the senses. Right, right, um, right, But let me go to Anne in Mill Valley, who's on the line. Hi, Anne, go ahead. Hi there. Um, I just wanted to share a really kind of crazy experience I had scuba diving in uh, Monterey Bay recently. Um, I was out with about 12 other divers, just me and my buddy, but there were a lot of other divers in the water. And I, um, you know, was going around um, 30 feet, just kind of going through some kelp, and I felt sort of a tug at my left uh, fin foot, 
and I turned around thinking it was just a piece of kelp wrapped around my foot like it normally is, and it was a harbor seal. And he had grabbed my fin and, you know, startled me. I um, sort of backed away and then, you know, quickly had to catch up with my buddy who didn't notice. And we were only in in uh, about 12-foot visibility, so I didn't want to lose him. And then after the next 20 minutes, 30 feet deep, this this harbor seal kept coming back to me. And as this is happening, I'm, you know, thinking, oh, my gosh, he's like after my foot. He thinks my fin is a fish. I'm wearing new blue slippers. And I'm just, you know, thinking, oh, my gosh. And every time I'm sort of giving chase as he, you know, comes and pulls at my fin and then takes off and I turn around and kind of squeak and then go a little bit further. Five minutes later, he comes back and pulls my fin. It, It happened about four more times. And so I was forced, I'm so glad you're having this conversation because I was forced over, you know, the next few nights and thinking about this, you know, what could I have done differently? Why was he doing this? And I know they're very playful and they don't mean to be aggressive. And I didn't feel that that was the case. But then I, I got to this thinking of my orange, Mandarin orange body wash and like my Pantene, you know, shampoo and, you know, that there was maybe a trail in the water that he was smelling. And then do seals actually smell underwater? And we've had um, this conversation with some friends and like, no way can they smell you. And so this is such a great conversation to have because I really think that was it. Mm. Well, Anne, what do you think uh, about what Anne's saying, Ed Young? Uh, um, So, yeah, I I think I fully encourage people to ask these exactly these kinds of questions. Um, You know, is it smell? Um, I don't know. It, It could be. Um, maybe it's something to do with the color of the fins. Maybe it's something to do with the specific kinds of trails you are leaving behind in the water. You know, I think people like sometimes make guesses about which particular sense it might be, and those guesses might be wrong, right? Like we we have um, we uh, you know the the, um, the the body wash may be like very very um, uh, striking to to our senses, maybe not be what the seal cares about at all. We might not know what the seal cares about, um, and maybe as you know, and said it's it's just playing, it's just being playful. Um, seals and sea lions actually often do try and pull um, flippers off snorkelers. I've I've had the same thing uh, happen to me too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, I, I don't know the answer to this, right? Like one thing I often say to people who uh, in Q&As about, about this book is I cannot explain the weird thing that your pet does. Um, and it, in this like case, I, I probably can't explain the weird thing that the seal was doing. But like, isn't it kind of a joyful thing to try and try and figure it out? Um, you know, and you can sort of figure it out without like relying, without resorting to anthropomorphism. Um, and, and it feels sort of richer to do it. Like, I, I don't know if you'll ever get the answer to it, but like, yeah. it, it's kind of fun to try and think about what the seal was experiencing in that moment. Yes, it is. It, it follows this path of when you start to think in those terms, you're filled with wonder and amazement, which all, often lends itself to then appreciation, right, for the creature of the animal, a certain mm-hmm. kind of respect, which ultimately then leads to usually positive action or better treatment or or empathy or compassion. I, I do think that that is one of the things I experienced while reading your book. Similarly, we have another listener, Joanne, who writes, I was playing my flute on my condo deck and this bird came up and started tweeting, chirping at me or with me. Do you know what he, what was he responding to? Did he think I was a bird too or singing along or trying to communicate with me. And again, you don't have to answer that question, but taking that moment to try to understand and appreciate it is really powerful. 
Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I write in the book that the qualities that birds are listening for in birdsong are, are very different than what we're listening for. You know, there are birds who, like... Um, you know, a lot of birders like recognize birds by the sort of syllables that they're making. Like we can transliterate them into like approximations of what we're hearing into sounds that like humans can make. But like there are birds for whom like the syllables actually don't matter. It's it's the very, very fast changes in frequency that occur within the span of a single note that they're caring about. You could like reorder the notes and they might not notice at all. You could like make flips in the song and they'll you know recognize that something strange has happened so you know when you're playing the flute like what what is it about that that melody that the bird finds enchanting if if it if it does you know is it the, the notes is it like some specific thing you're doing within the span of a single note that you can't even hear um who knows right but but i think you're right that this is the type of stuff i want people to start thinking about well, Liz writes, I had an old dog whose mere scent from afar used to terrify a horse in an adjacent field. It would send the horse racing with anxiety around the paddock. Just before my dog passed, the horse allowed him to approach the fence close enough for them both to be almost touching. They smelled one another. I swear that horse knew my dog was no longer a threat, that he would die that week. We're talking about animal senses and the immense worlds immense hidden worlds that they reveal when we take a moment to appreciate them with Ed Young, staff writer at The Atlantic. We'll have more with Ed after the break. Stay with us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking with Ed Young, staff writer at The Atlantic, about his new book, An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. His first book was I Contain Multitudes, which Young won the 2021 Pulitzer Prize. Uh, actually, he won the 2021 Pulitzer Prize in explanatory reporting for his coverage of the COVID-19 pandemic. So there is a lot to check out by Ed Young. And you, our listeners, can also ask him questions, share your reactions to what he's saying, or share with us what you wondered about the animals around you and how they 
perceive the world by emailing forum at kqed.org, finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or by giving us a call, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Let me go to Nora in Daly City. Hi, Nora. Hi. Uh, good morning. I love the conversation. And I had a question for Ed. How is it possible not to anthropomorphize uh, when we are human beings analyzing animals, and also uh, we're experimenting on animals uh, by uh, learning how many, you know, how their senses are, are, are made and sometimes harming them in our study. Um, so I'm just wondering how yeah. we... Uh, does not anthropomorphize. <laughs> I love I love that question, Nora, because you do talk about this, Ed, in, in terms of how how you try to get better at, at crossing the divide between our umwelt and the umwelt of other animals. Oh yeah, and it is hard. You know, to be very clear, the answer to to this question is with great difficulty. Um, you know, I I, uh, I am a sighted human. Vision is is dominant for me as a sense, and visual metaphors abound in our language. It is very hard to write an entire book about animal senses without relentlessly using visual terms in places where I think they actually. Um, conceal more than they illuminate. I've just used a visual term there, right? We talk about <laughs> illumination as uh, as an act of increasing knowledge. So um, yeah, this was, this was very difficult to do. And, um, and you know, I, I hope the book goes some way towards uh, resisting that as much as I can to really trying to get into the perspective of the animals that I'm writing about. But, you know, I say up front that I, like all the scientists I talk to, are limited by the constraints and biases of our own senses. And that is the challenge for me, for them, for readers to 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 effortfully resist um, throughout this sensory voyage. And I think the question about like the experiments is is very well taken. Um, you know, a lot of the knowledge gleaned from in the book um, was gleaned through um, like experiments that are like horrible, like that, that uh, a lot of historical ones that were really quite gruesome and that harmed a lot of the creatures it, that they they um, involved in. in in really bad ways, uh, and even modern experiments are, are, sort of, are still doing this, although to to a lesser degree. You know, I talk a lot about experiments which I think um, are kind of wonderful and creative and don't harm any animals, and, and actually still teach us a lot. But it's sort of there for readers to to grapple with. You know, what is the the price of this knowledge about um, animal adults? There's a whole chapter about pain where I talk about the variations in in the in the experience of pain across the animal kingdom. And you know, I have I have scientists who actually study the the experiences of pain in other animals specifically for reasons of like welfare to to actually improve their living conditions. But to actually do that work you do inevitably need to harm some of the creatures you're working with. So how do you weigh the ethical responsibility of harming a few to help the, the many um, when it comes to, to another creature? I think these are the questions that the, that the book raises. And I, I, that, you know, I, I, I don't think of easy, easy answers, but I do think are worth grappling with. Yeah, I love this line from your book when you say, when I think about other Umwelten, I feel my mind flexing and the joy of an impossible task nonetheless attempted. Um, it is, it's hard because even the documentaries that we watch, as you point out, are very anthropomorphized. <laughs> and so even though we come to appreciate them in this way, it's a different way of using your brain when you're trying to remove yourself 
from centering sort of your human umwelt. Uh, we've got lots more questions coming in. Jason writes, would you be able to speak a bit about the tiny psychedelic monster known as the colossal shrimp? I understand it has multiple visual receptors. It can see in many different wavelengths of light. Is there any work done on how humans can expand their capacity of understanding diverse perspectives by understanding limits of perception? I think that he is talking about the mantis shrimp, mm. um, which uh, I do write a lot about in the book. And it is uh, complicated, but I'm going to try and give you the simple version. So the the popular the popular understanding about the mantis shrimp is that while like humans have three kinds of color sensing cells in our eyes, they have um, twelve or, or even more. And and the the idea then is that they have access to this like incredible like multi-dimensional kaleidoscope of colors that we cannot even begin to comprehend or imagine, and that is not true. Um, the, some of the scientists who've done work on mantis shrimps have actually uh, busted this myth uh, of a few years ago by showing that actually their ability to discriminate between different colors, even ones that look obvious to us, right, like orange and yellow, uh, is terrible. They, they are much worse in it than most other animals, despite having 12 color receptors. So, so what is going on there? It seems that um, in our eyes, when we... When we um, those three color sensing cells are doing like complicated arithmetic between their signals, which means that um, from those three, we get like the millions of colors we perceive. A mantis shrimp seems to do none of that. It seems to be just taking the outputs from its color sensing uh, cells and just going straight to the brain. And it then compares those signals against some kind of mental lookup table, right? So if like cells one, three, and five go off, maybe that's like orange. Um, and the shrimp does this thing. Um, maybe if like four, five, six go off, it's something else. So the, the shrimp acts accordingly. It's um, it's a very weird and very different kind of color sensing um, that um, is is actually very hard to grapple with. Like, I, if anyone's confused after listening to this, I don't blame you. There's a much more detailed explanation in the book that sort of walks it through it much more, more slowly. But I think the point here is that it's actually very easy to um, make, like, to jump to um, like uh, overly simplistic conclusions about what animals are based on, like, um, uh, these these quite reasonable assumptions, right? So it has like more color sensing cells, so its experience must be more, must be much richer. There are many examples in which that um, that kind of the, uh, the, that kind of logical leap is is actually works against us, mm. um, and that what the animal doing is is even more bizarre than than what we might think. Yeah, I, I definitely recommend that section in your book about mantis shrimp, and it's actually also making me think about KQED's Deep Look YouTube series because they also featured the mantis shrimp, and they also <laughs> feature other extraordinary animals in like ultra high definition. So that's definitely worth checking out as well. Um, another listener wants to know, is it true that hawks and eagles perceive movement, not only with acute vision, seeing distances many times better than ours, but also have a refresh rate of information resulting in a kind of slow motion, as we would understand it? Yeah, there are actually a lot of animals um, with much faster vision than, than we do. The, the idea of the refresh rate is, is actually exactly right. Um, the the um, birds that are best at this um, uh, are actually the ones that uh, track fast moving insects. So like small fly catchers rather than, um, rather than a huge uh, mighty eagle. 
um, because they, they have need of that, right? They, they need to track incredibly fast moving prey. And so their vision just operates like the, uh, on a faster timescale. I, I feel like to a bird like that, to a flycatcher, our movements must look like absolutely glacial. Um, but then insects have um, it have even faster vision, right? So there, I write it. There's a whole section in the book about this insect called the killer fly, which hunts other flies on the wing, and like its its eyes are operating at such a fast speed that like the fly is watching something and taking off and reacting like faster than like uh, you know signals can even leave leave our retina, um, and like how do you catch a fly like this uh it turns out the way you do it is by just walking up very very slowly to it because to a creature with extremely fast vision normal human movement just you know is so slow that looks so slow that it might you might as well just be standing still Well, this listener, Paris, writes, I'm so glad you're focusing on the importance of imagining the experience of another creature because it deepens our personhood and connection to the world around us, which gives us respect for our fellow creatures. Maybe if we can imagine the experiences of the animals around us and come to respect and appreciate them, we will be able to do the same thing with our fellow humans. You know, Ed, we have talked before almost exclusively about the pandemic, which you reported on a great deal. And as I read your book, I really was thinking about what it must have been like for you to be able to take a break from all of that pandemic reporting to to enter this amazing universe. But at the same time, I also wondered if you saw a through line between what you were realizing about the value of doing this and the pandemic itself or the divisions um, yeah. that, that it brought out or really brought into stark relief? Yeah, I do see a through line uh, and uh, two, actually, one of which um, the, the, the listener you just read from um, absolutely identified just just spot on um, the, the value of empathy. You know, I do see empathy as, as kind of a muscle. I think you can build it. I think you can strengthen it. Um, I, I do see a, a way in which um, thinking about the, the experiences of creatures that are so different from us leaves us in a better place to think about the lives of people who have um, suffered more at the hands of, you know, in, in the, um, uh, as a result of the COVID pandemic. Uh, much of what we've talked about before about the pandemic has been about this kind of catastrophic lack of empathy um, or inability to understand what it must be like for people who are at greater risk of infection or who have fewer resources to protect themselves. Um, you know, I, I don't want to, for a moment, suggest that, like, reading my quirky book about animals is going to, like, make people, you know, better suited to, de- to like, is going to, like, reduce inequity uh, around the country. I, far from it. But I do think there is a through line about um, trying to um, trying to take different perspectives that that connects these two areas of writing, and the other is just that um, I think so much of my work is about revealing hidden sides to the world around us. Um, with COVID, it was about revealing the structures of our society that leave even a powerful country like the US incredibly vulnerable in the face of a new virus. Um, whether it's the stretched healthcare system, the underfunded public health system, you know, social safety nets that have been shredded over the last decades, there are all these weaknesses that I think most people look past 
um, and that they shouldn't. That, that it's important to stab them in the face because if we don't fix them, we don't. We leave ourselves in this perpetually weakened state. Um, the, the the hidden worlds in the book are, are more obvious, but you know I, I think it's it's the same idea. Like our understanding of the world around us, whether it's because of our umbelt or because of our privilege, is narrow. And unless we try and actively widen it, um, you know, we we live an impoverished life and where we we are um, poorer members of the communities around us, whether it's community of humans or a community of species. We're talking with Ed Yong about the multiple parallel universes, perspectives and experiences around us, whether of animals and now of people. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Well, this listener wants to know, what do you know about chicken senses? I'm reading that there are more than we know. My daughter is addicted to her small flock. She sees something I don't. Do you know anything about um, chicken senses? I'm always terrified about these questions. Right? There's <laughs> one animal that I know nothing about. I can tell you some stuff about chickens. Um, so uh, ch chickens, like a lot of birds, have eyes that face to the sides. right? So their, their fields of view are lateral which means that um, that thing that a chicken does when it approaches you, where it turns its head from side to side, is that animal focusing on you with its best line of vision but from one eye to the next. Um, and there are some really interesting experiments showing that um, the... That, um, you know, much like there's some lateralization in our brains and different parts of the brain do different things, um, that is like kind of extreme for a bird. So um, there are like birds will use specific eyes for specific tasks. Um, and there is something, there is absolutely work on, about this on chickens uh, and that is in the book, but that I've just temporarily, forgot, temporarily forgotten, uh, but it's there in the chapter in vision. I know that... Um, for a uh, peregrine falcon, like that, I, I know, know this about their lateralization. So they track um, moving prey uh, mostly with the right facing eye, I think. Um, so when a peregrine is diving after uh, a pigeon, for example, it's trying to keep it in the right visual field. So it like makes this corkscrew shape as it dies after the bird. It's like, uh, you know, in the book, I talk about it having a murderous side eye. Uh, but it, it tends to be, I think it's the right, um, and readers can can correct me if I've just got my own book wrong. <laughs> well, let me go to caller Joe in Redwood City. Hi, Joe. Hey, good morning. This is great. Um, I was coming back from trying to find a way to get my stereo repaired in my car. Unfortunately, the radio worked, and I popped it on, and you guys are right here. So Yay. really, really love this topic. Yay, I know. So... Um, my question is about my dog. Um, he's a cockapoo. He'll be seven this year. And um, for the longest time, maybe the first, I don't know, three or four years, um, he just, you know, would vocalize in kind of the normal dog ways, barking and sometimes whimpering or making little noises if he um, needed to go outside, which is great. And then one time in the last couple of years, for whatever reason, my wife just decided to, quote, talk back to him, unquote, just to see what would happen. Um, and so she would, he would come over and she'd start going, aroo, aroo, and, and just trying to make vocalizations as if we could ever hope to, you know, actually communicate. But the funny thing is then he started vocalizing back and it's not a bark and it's not a, a howl. 
and it's not one of those beagle yelps, but it's it's some vocalizations of him going softer and louder, and there's there's got to be several different sounds in there, and it. I was just wondering, you know, if he's going back and forth with her and she'll say something and then he'll say something back, what could possibly be going on there? <laughs> Joe, that's a sweet story. Any thoughts? Yeah, Joe, you'll you remember um, earlier um, I, I said to another listener, uh, I cannot explain why your pet <laughs> does the weird thing that right, it does. Right, right, my, right, yeah. my dog also does weird stuff like that sometimes, uh, and I, I have no explanation for it. Um, stuff like this is hard, right? Because it's not necessarily a sensory thing. Um, this, you know, what you're, you're doing is, is really about communication, right? It, it's about, um, it's right. about the, the production of information rather than the reception of it. But I think, you know, I, 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 I think these stories like this are just kind of wonderful. I, I think they speak to the, the weird interactions that, um, that can occur between people and the animals that are close to them. And I just really encourage people to think about, to think about this, to find wonder in these interactions and to just like, um, I, I think it's more important to ask the question than to know the answer. That makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And also, we begin with the animals that are immediately around us, our companions. Right. And we end <laughs> with the animal that is immediately around us and our companions. I'm actually a cat person, but I love talking about the dog and learning <laughs> about the dog. Well, thank you, Ed Yong, for once again opening our minds. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. This has been great. Ed Young's new book is An Immense World, How Animal Senses Reveal the Hidden Realms Around Us. Thank you, listeners, for sharing your experiences, stories, your wonder and amazement as well. And my thanks to Susie Britton for producing today's segment. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising-Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them, with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.